couple of years ago, a Roman Catholic writer named Steve Weidenkoft, he wrote an article entitled, quote, Leo and Luther, the real story of the Pope and the heretic. Now, that article coincided with the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation, which officially began in 1517, although the seeds of the Reformation were planted at least a century earlier. But here's what Weidenkopf says is the myth. He calls this the myth. Quote, Martin Luther was a simple reformer who desired to rid the church of corruption and abuses. But when he challenged the Pope on the issue of indulgences, he was unjustly condemned, which forced him to break from the church. Interestingly, what Weidenkopf calls a myth is verifiable history. He goes on to say, quote, This narrative is false. Luther was an unrepentant heretic. Pope Leo X recognized the danger of Luther's teachings. And then in this article, Weidenkopf, he recalls the history of what was happening in the early 1500s in the Catholic Church and he admits freely that Pope Leo X decided in 1515 to continue the practice of granting indulgences. An indulgence was a supposed lessening of one's time in purgatory after death. And how did you get this indulgence? Well, you got it by giving money to the rebuilding and redecorating of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. You ever wondered how Michelangelo was funded? It was indulgences. Well, Luther took issue with this in his uh, famous, in fact, what Weidenkopf calls infamous, 95 theses or statements that he posted on the Wittenberg church door. And Weidenkopf states concerning these 95 statements, quote, the most dangerous heresy was his rejection of papal authority, the authority of the Pope. Luther asserted the Pope had no authority to dispense the merits of the treasury of grace to the faithful in, form of, in the form of indulgences in order to remit the temporal punishment of sin. There is at the core of Roman Catholicism, both in the 14th century and in the 21st century, a basic belief, and this is core to understand this, a basic belief that justification by faith is a process which is started by God and finished by you. God gets the ball rolling, but it's up to you to keep it rolling, so to speak. They taught then, they continue to teach what they call the final stages of justification. And these final stages are brought about by the good work that the person does. And what this means is that you really, know, you really don't know the state of your soul until you die. You don't know. As one Roman Catholic teaching source openly says, quote, the determining factor for those who go to heaven or hell are those who did and did not do works of mercy. And so that's the basic question that Luther sought to address was who gets glory in salvation? Who gets glory and salvation? In his day and in ours, the Roman Catholic Church would say, God gets some glory, mankind gets some glory, and the Pope gets a lot of glory. Because he is, as they say, the dispenser of grace on earth. Now, perhaps in our circles of Protestant theology, which is based on the authority of Scripture alone and not on self-proclaimed authority of church tradition we can all agree that this, is, this isn't right. And we can kind of have a big 
festival here to say we're right and they're wrong. But among anyone who contemplates coming to faith in Jesus Christ, an unbeliever, anyone who's thinking about their eternal destiny at any level whatsoever, our sinful default religious guess, our best guess is that God must want me to do something. God must want me to somehow merit and earn and deserve his good favor and forgiveness. That's, that's where we default to, right? That's where all humanity defaults to. What that would mean logically then is that mankind must get some percentage of glory and credit for salvation from sin. That would just be the logical outcome. In fact, we can see this in American evangelical presentations of the gospel, so-called Protestants, and why someone should be saved. One article put out recently by the Wycliffe Institute for Evangelism An institute for evangelism, you should think, would be rich in the doctrines of grace, rich in the gospel, rich in the word of God. We would expect him to give compelling reasons to become a Christian. This particular article went on and on and on about there's one big reason why you should become a Christian. Here it is. This is what life is all about. What does that say? That's word macaroni and cheese. There's no nutritional value whatsoever. The author goes on to say that someone should become a Christian because, quote, God longs for a friendship with you. In other words, you become a Christian to somehow meet God's needs and satisfy your own ego. That's what life is all about. And that's a fairly typical sales approach to evangelism. Let me tell you all the things you can get. Now, to be certain, in salvation, we do receive so very much. But how often do we think about what God gets in salvation? What does God receive when a person turns away from their sinful rebellion and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation? The Reformers boiled down the many doctrinal principles of the Great Reformation to five principles, the famous solas, meaning alone, the alones, so to speak, of the Reformation, sola gratia, Grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus in Christ alone, sola scriptura revealed in scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And this morning, in honor of the great reformation inaugurated the end of October, 1517, I'd like to deal with the topic of soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And I want to ask the question, who gets glory in salvation? And this evening, Pastor David will deal with sola gratia by grace alone and answer the question, who gets grace in salvation? But this morning, to examine the issue of glory in salvation, we need to really look more broadly at the issue of the glory of God in general and in other areas. And so we're going to use this amazing text of Psalm 29, which Pastor David read. I never want to hear Psalm 29 read again except by anybody but Pastor David. He alone can say the word thunder, and it actually sounds like thunder. That's awesome. If Psalm 8 was meant to be read by the light of the moon, when I look at your stars, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, if Psalm 19 was meant to be read at dawn with the sun coming up like the bridegroom leaving his chamber and traveling its course, then Psalm 29 is best remembered when the storm clouds are approaching. The God of glory thunders. I'd like to prove this morning the case for precisely who should get all the glory for salvation of all who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to do this just with a series of if statements. 
some if statements. First, if God gets glory in heaven, if God gets glory in heaven, and we'll start there. Verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, we should remember as we get into this text that the ancient people of Israel were very outdoorsy. They didn't have a choice. Like all of their neighbors, they lived way more outdoors than they did indoors. Indoors was where you slept, basically. They were vitally connected to nature as they lived in it to a greater degree than we do. It's believed that King David was observing an awesome thunderstorm with these great dry streaks of lightning stabbing across the sky and the massive thunder of a terrible storm, eventually followed by rain. And David interpreted this as a theophany, as an appearance of God. And his response to this is that glory should be ascribed to God. The psalm begins in the grandeur of the very courts of heaven itself. We begin in heaven, and David calls to the heavenly beings, the angels, literally in Hebrew, the sons of God, or the sons of might. He calls them to ascribe glory to God, to ascribe. It's a, it's a command. How odd is this? David, looking up into heaven, talking to the angels, saying, You, I command you, ascribe glory to God. It means to Give him what is due to place glory upon him, to set glory upon him. He calls them to worship the greatness of God. And this is, of course, consistent with the fact that the major function of angels is to continually acknowledge God's intrinsic glory, the fullness of his character and his nature and his, his, his strength to ascribe glory to God is to agree with the glory that God already possesses intrinsically and to actively communicate that glory. It is an out loud communication of all that God is. And these two verses open the psalm with a very clear intent that this is meant to be big and overpowering and dynamic and magnificent. God is called by His covenant name, Yahweh. I am who I am. The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. Translated in this text, the Lord, he's called Yahweh 18 times in this psalm. I mean, Psalm 29 reads like a shout of loyalty. Yahweh, 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 over and over again. The idea of glory is referenced four times, along with other words expressing awe and magnificence. We see strength and splendor and power and majesty and holiness. If I can put it this way by way of comparison... If the still waters of Psalm 23 make you bask in safety, the stormy waters of Psalm 29 make you run for cover at the might and the power of God. And David then is calling to the angels to fulfill the very first and the primary duty of all created beings to glorify and praise God. They are to ascribe to Yahweh glory. This is an impossibly massive concept which speaks to the weightiness of God, the importance of God, the grandeur of God, the holiness of God. And in fact, verse 2 says they are to ascribe to the Lord glory because it is due His name. Meaning His awesome intrinsic perfection deserves to be extolled and lifted up and boasted of. 
The intrinsic glory of God is the glory which he always possesses. The ascribed glory of God is the boasting, the communication of God's glory. Doing this aloud and doing it to others. God deserved ascribed glory because he possesses intrinsic glory. And in verse 2, the angels are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, there are two possible meanings to this phrase. Both are allowable in Hebrew. The first possibility, it means to worship the one who is arrayed in holiness, who is dressed in holiness, so to speak, because he's the one who's set apart, who's different, who's other, who is above, who is holy. But it can also mean worship in holy array or holy attire, holy clothing, in clothing set apart just for the worship of God, festive garments, so to speak. Now, given the fact that numbers of places in Scripture describe the worship garments of the priests of Israel, the worship garments of the angels in heaven, the worship garments of the saints in heaven who have gone before us, it seems reasonable to lean toward this second option. In fact, we have this perfect triad three times, ascribed to the Lord, ascribed to the Lord, ascribed to the Lord, followed by, and when you ascribe glory to the Lord, do so in your holy attire in your holy clothing. And if we take this literally, and we have no reason to not take the Bible literally, it seems that David is telling the angels, can I put it this way, wear your Sunday best for ascribing glory to God. On multiple occasions, the Bible tells us what this ascribing of glory to God looks like, what it sounds like. The most famous, of course, is witnessed by the prophet Isaiah as he's caught up to the courts of heaven, recorded in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And with the completion of the New Testament, we get even more detail that the angels aim their glory. They aim it very, very specifically, laser beam focused toward the Son of God. Revelation 5, 11, and 12, we hear the voice of many angels numbering myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What was started in Isaiah 6 is finished very clearly in Revelation 5. That's what it looks like when angels ascribe glory. If God gets glory in heaven, we'll continue our argument. Second, if God gets glory on earth, if God gets glory on earth, now the psalm changes from heaven to earth. Now the sounds of the thunderstorm are coming And they're seen as proclaiming the might and the glory of God. King David, from his palace rooftop, from his own house, he could look to the north, he could look to the northeast, and he could see, to the northwest rather, he could see uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea, you could see the storm clouds gathering. You could see them far away. What does he see? Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. 
the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Verse 3 proclaims the voice of the Lord is over many waters. This is one way of referencing the vastness of an ocean. But it also may be a reference to the waters above the sky, the rain clouds and the waters below the sky, the waters of the earth. And the God of glory thunders. This is a double reference. There is a reference, first of all, to the actual thunder that David is hearing, which he interprets as a manifestation of God's glory. And it serves as a metaphorical picture of the voice of God, which is like thunder. So is it the thunder or the voice of God? Yes, all of the above. And now in verses 3 through 9, the clear focus is the voice of Yahweh. Seven times. The voice of the Lord, 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 the voice of the Lord. There's no doubt as to what the theme of this psalm is. And in verse 4, his voice is described. First of all, it's powerful. It doesn't just mean it's loud and it's intimidating. This is a statement of total sovereignty. That God is omnipotent. He is mighty. He does whatever he pleases. No one has ever made God do anything. No one has ever manipulated God. No one has ever changed God's mind. He's powerful. The voice of thunder is also described as full of majesty. To be full of majesty, it's the idea of being clothed in something, clothed in splendor and grandeur. Can I put it this way? His voice is royal. It's royal in bearing. When the voice of the Lord speaks, it is the voice of the King of Kings. So when the voice of God is heard, it's undefeatable in its power and it's irresistible in its stateliness and in its greatness. Listen, you could, you could get a thesaurus and you could exhaust all the best words in there and still not have scratched the surface of how do we describe the glory of God? And so David sees this storm to the northwest over the Mediterranean and now it blows inland toward the north of Israel. Verse 5 The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon were the strongest, biggest possessions of this Canaanite land. Massive trees, famous all over the world. In fact, they were used in the building of the temple. But the Lord is breaking them. He's splitting them with bolts of lightning, splitting them in two when it bursts in the flame from the inside out from a 54,000 degree lightning strike. And then David personifies the land. The earth is like a scared animal. Verse 6. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Syrian was the Phoenician, the Canaanite name for the snow-capped Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain between Israel and the northlands of Lebanon at over 9,200 feet. And the mountain itself, this massive mountain, it's said to skip like a calf, like a young wild ox. It's skittish, it's nervous, it's easily frightened. The mighty Syrian skipping away, going, moo, and that's it. Almost a 10,000 foot mountain, scared to death. Now we've already had an indirect reference to lightning, and now the text directly asserts this as being God's power. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Flashes forth, this will make sense to you. In Hebrew, it literally means splits out. Like lightning tearing across the sky, splitting into fork after fork and broadening out. 
Our family lived in central Texas for many years, and every summer we had these massive thunderstorms, and they were often preceded by hours of dry lightning just flashing across the sky, and it was so bright you, you couldn't look at it. It hurt your, eye, your eyes to look at it. Some flashes of lightning have been seen to be six times brighter than the sun at one moment. And of course, followed by deafening thunder. And it was something to stir the soul. Now, we sort of got used to it, and we were amazed when we came to California that we'd be in public, and one clap of thunder, and women were screaming, and children were running. Like, we don't even bring an umbrella for those. Just this year in Kansas... Satellites recorded a record-breaking flash of spider lightning 400 miles long, which lit up the sky for almost 14 seconds. It was the size, literally, of Kansas over the state. Obviously, here in California, we knew all too well the tremendous damage and destruction which just one lightning strike can cause. Just a month ago, the U.S. Forest Service recorded 19,000 lightning strikes in Northern California in a 12-hour period. How easily God could wipe us from the face of the earth with lightning alone if he wanted to. And now David observes the storm. It's moved from the Mediterranean over Lebanon. Now it's coming southward. Verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. This is not the same wilderness as Kadesh Barnea. That was the wilderness that the Israelites wandered in far to the southwest of Israel. This is still in the north. This is still out of Israel. And it's important to remember this. This is not in Israel. The shaking of the wilderness speaks of all things in the wilderness. The, the plants, the trees being blown and shaken, twisted and torn. We've all seen pictures, maybe you've been there, where you've seen palm trees just leaned over at 90 degrees with winds so fast and so furious. And even the animals are impacted Somewhat curiously and a little bit humorously, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and in his temple all cry glory. Uh, this, is, this is a clear picture. This is a premature birth. A deer just minding its own business, walking through the woods, big clap of thunder, boom, and there's the, there's the baby. But the same word can also mean to convulse or to, to tremble. To be in fear, to tremble. Our, our little doggie, her least favorite night of the year is July 4th. And she trembles her way through all of our neighbors terrifying her with their legal fireworks. She does the same thing the, the nights we have rare storms here. Causes trembling, even among the animals. Strips the forest bare. And now David finishes this section with a picture. During this approaching storm, remember it started in the northwest and it came from the Mediterranean going over the mountains of Lebanon, coming southward toward Jerusalem, toward Israel. And the worshipers in the earthly temple in Jerusalem cry glory. And they suddenly join the heavenly worshipers in the heavenly temple. And in his temple, all cry glory, into verse 9. What does it mean to cry glory? It's a spontaneous acclamation of praise, emphasizing the weightiness of God, the importance of God, the worth of God, the might of God, the power of God. It's all encapsulated in that one word. 
nothing can add to the intrinsic glory that God possesses, but we do ascribe glory to God. We extend his reputation. We promote his fame that he alone is exalted and he alone is sovereign and he alone is to be worshipped on the earth. So very clearly, the point is made that God gets glory on earth. Let's continue our proof. If God gets glory in heaven, if God gets glory on earth, let's continue our proof. If God gets glory over false gods, if God gets glory over false gods, this psalm serves another purpose. Verse 1, to be ironic, uses a precisely vague term to describe the angels of heaven. They're the heavenly beings, literally in Hebrew, the sons of God, the sons of might. This can and it does refer to the holy angels. And it can and does refer to fallen angels. Job 2 verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, same phrase in Hebrew, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. This psalm functions at least partly as what's called a polemic, an an argumentative statement against false gods. Because if you said the phrase, the sons of God, or in the ESV, the heavenly beings, if you, you said that phrase to a Canaanite, he would say, oh yeah, you're referring to all of our gods. That's what they would think. The pantheon of Canaanite gods that they worshipped. And we should remember that the Bible teaches us that there are demonic powers, fallen angel powers, behind the false gods. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20, sacrifices offered to idols are in actuality offered to demons, fallen angels posing as gods. And so Psalm 29 is also calling for the pagan gods, the demons, to bow down and give praise to the God of Israel, to acknowledge that he alone possesses all glory and might and power. In fact, there's a more direct command in Psalm 97, verse 7, which commands, Worship him, all you gods. But did you notice the distinctive geographic element to this psalm? The the naming of definite places? The false gods, the demons, they claim to control territories on earth. In fact, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, an angel of God refers to a specific demon as, quote, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And what god is supposed to control Canaan, especially the northern territories of Lebanon? Baal. The chief of the Canaanite gods. Now, just to be precise here, Baal is really more of a title, which simply means Lord. But Baal's proper name is Hadad, H-A-D-A-D. You know what that means? It means the thunderer. Baal is the god of thunder. Ancient Baal worship, by the way, included the idea that Baal was the lord of the seven thunders. But David overwhelms Canaanite false worship and mythology with the truth. He proclaims the voice of the Lord. How many times? Seven times. David says, no, Yahweh alone is the God of thunder. Yahweh alone receives glory. And since Baal was also the God of fertility and nature, the cedars of Lebanon were a symbol of Canaanite pride. They were a symbol of the might of Baal. But Yahweh, in verse 5, he breaks the cedars. 
Now, if you were a Jew to the south, you called the biggest mountain in that region Mount Hermon. But the Canaanite Baal worshiper always called it Syrian. And Yahweh shakes Syrian like a skittish calf who goes mooing away. By the way, ancient images of Baal often portrayed this God as a bull. And Yahweh sends him skithering away like a baby cow. Psalm 29 serves notice to all false gods that Yahweh alone is God. Yahweh alone will receive glory. And this is easily applicable to us. The false gods of humanism, the false gods of evolutionism, the false gods of gender reassignment, the false gods of rampant sexual immorality, all the things which oppose Yahweh are served notice that the thunder is coming. If God gets glory in heaven, If God gets glory on earth, if God gets glory over false gods, let's continue our proof. If God gets glory in judgment, if God gets glory in judgment, David is watching the storm. He's sensing in his spirit the might and the power of God, seeing a storm so mighty that even the worshipers over in the temple in Jerusalem are crying glory. What does that bring to mind? Well, it would bring to his mind the greatest storm of all time. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. David is reminded of the greatest storm ever to hit earth, the flood of Noah. This is not just any flood referenced here. The Hebrew word used for flood here is always, 100% of the time in the Old Testament, only used of Noah's flood. Genesis 6, 5 records, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And thus God determined to end human life as they knew it. And what a storm it was. Genesis 7, beginning in verse 11, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We complain when it rains overnight. And look at this picture. Look at this picture of almighty sovereign God who does as he pleases, judging the the sin of mankind. It's not, oh no, look at these poor people drowning. It's not, oh, look how tragic it is that all these people died. It's not, oh, how sad for everyone. It's not, Oh, these people have rights too. It's not, oh, we should do something. Instead, we gulp, we tremble, and we focus our eyes on verse 10 because David pictures the Almighty God seated on his throne over the flood who has done as he pleased with sinful mankind. Yahweh is the king over all. He's seated as king in stateliness, in dignity, in grandeur, in magnificence, in glory. And Yahweh remains on his throne as the earth is purged below of all the rebels. And the Lord sits enthroned as the king forever, judging the earth and watching with utter white hot wrath and righteousness as all the earth is drowned. And God is glorified in his wrath. He's glorified in his judgment. If his perfection is violated He's glorified and honored in the purging of all which refuses to conform to his perfection and his holiness. 
Habakkuk 1.13 reminds us that God is of purer eye than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Listen, never mistake, never mistake the idea of believing that the judgment of God, the wrath of God is somehow less than good. Because God is good and all that he does is good, including, by the way, ridding the creation of all that is not good. In fact, let me illustrate for you the consistency of the glory of God in judgment. You don't need to turn here because we would be all over the place, but let me just walk you through part of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1 through 3 deals with John's vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the instruction he gives to the churches at that time. But then, beginning in chapter 4, the concern turns to a future day. The church now has been raptured and resurrected and now begins the seven-year period of on earth. Scripture identifies as the tribulation In chapter 4, we see a vision of heaven and the the church is in heaven around the throne of God. In chapter 5, we see this scroll, the title deed to the earth and to the judgments that will retake the earth for the rightful owner. And the only one worthy to open the scroll is the rightful owner of the earth, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And now the scroll in chapter 6 begins to be opened. And the first six seals of that scroll are broken open. The six judgments on the earth, beginning with the coming of Antichrist. This includes, by the way, the prayers of the martyred saints asking for retribution by God. It includes the death of one-fourth of the population of all the earth. And that's just getting started. Those who continue to harden themselves against the gospel will continue to refuse to repent. And then in chapter 7, which is somewhat of a parenthetical section, a side note, we see 144,000 Jewish witnesses saved and sealed by God against harm that they might proclaim the gospel. We see a vision of all the tribulation saints in the same chapter that will be saved and martyred. In chapter 8, the seventh seal, which is the, the seven trumpet judgments now, we see the first four. And then in chapter 9, we see the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, the release of two demonic armies, one that attacks and doesn't allow the death, and doesn't allow death, and now another that attacks and kills a third of humanity. And if you're doing your math, the fourth is dead, then a third is dead. That means half of humanity has now been wiped out of the face of the earth by God. The wrath of God is coming to earth because of continual demon worship, because of murder, because of occultic practices, because of sexual immorality, because of theft. And we see people now even killing each other in the midst of growing chaos on earth. And so now the judgment of God reaches this intensity that history has never seen. Revelation 10 verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow around his head, And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Now, some feel that that angel is the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Revelation, Jesus is always very clearly identified. And in that same chapter, in verse 6, this angel swears by God a different being than himself. But this is a mighty angel. Make no mistake, he is reflecting the glory of God with this face like a sun and It's understandable to make this mistake. Even the human author of Revelation, John, mistakenly tried to worship an angel. This angel helps us to stand in awe of the glory of God who is infinitely more mighty than the mightiest of angels. But this angel, he has a purpose and he has a destination. 
Revelation 10, verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So the angel descends from heaven to earth on a clear mission with instructions straight from God, pictured in, in massive proportions with great authority, this monumental picture of size and strength and domination. And he has a little scroll. Now, some feel that this is the same scroll as chapter 5, but the language is very clear that this is a different one. This is a little scroll. Chapter 5, it is the scroll with a definite article. Here in chapter 10, it's a scroll, different from the scroll. And the angel is apparently going to read what is on this little scroll. The scroll has been opened in his hand with his one foot on the sea and the other foot on the land. And the angel is on earth to declare the judgment of God. In Revelation 10, verse 3 And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called, the seven thunders sounded. And what are these seven thunders? Aside from the fact that once again, God is asserting himself as supreme and sovereign. Well, there's something specific. They're called the seven thunders. And we also know their articulated speech, something that's understandable. Because the very next verse When the seven thunders had sounded, I, that is John, was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And so for a time on earth, there was precisely one human being who ever knew what the seven thunders are. The text doesn't tell us what the seven thunders are, but we can make an educated guess. What else have we seen in sevens in Revelation? Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. Very high probability that these are seven thunder judgments, perhaps foreshadowed where? Psalm 29. As a matter of fact, concerning the coming judgment of God on earth, Isaiah 2 gives a description which will be very familiar to you now. Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon. And then for the next few verses, it goes on to give all the creative ways that God is going to crush the peoples of the earth. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. This is a little bit different than the God that was presented to you in Sunday school in third grade. God gets glory and judgment. His thunders will sound. The splendor of his majesty will be seen and those who have rebelled against him will attempt to run from what? From the glory of God. No one runs from the glory of God. So here's our argument in answer to the question. Who gets glory and salvation? If God gets glory in heaven, if God gets glory on earth, if God gets glory over false gods, and if God gets glory in judgment, then God gets glory and salvation. God gets glory and salvation. And we see this in verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. All of a sudden, the the storm is calmed. The clouds are gone. The thunder is gone. It's all quiet. And for the first time in this psalm, which is meant to terrify us, for the first time in this psalm, there's there's a tender note. There's a relational note. There's a personal communication. 
David expresses a wish for those who would bow down to the one true living God, to Yahweh. His wish is, may the same power displayed in the storm be made manifest for his people. May the opposite of the storm of judgment be the destiny of God's people. David says, may Yahweh bless his people with peace. Now there's some possibilities for this. He could be talking about inner peace and trust in the great glorious God. Or he could be talking about peace with surrounding nations as a sign of God's favor. This is written, after all, in the context of Israel, as usual, surrounded by nations that hate them. The third possibility, this is speaking of peace with God. Peace with God is those who do not want to be on the receiving end, who do not want to be like the cedars which break at the thunder of God. Now, all three can be considered and even be appropriate And I think in the context of the declaration and the command to ascribe to the Lord glory, this makes the the biggest and the most magnificent interpretation the favorite. This is peace with God. This is peace with God made available by the Lord Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty of your sin, who has absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. He's taken the thunder of God. And He's left in its wake the peace of God. As a matter of fact... The idea of glorifying God is used in Scripture to speak of humbling oneself in repentance, receiving the free gift of salvation through Christ. Revelation 16 describes the bold judgments of God in the coming great tribulation. And beginning in verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues they did not repent and give him glory. In other words, they refused to be saved. On the opposite side, 1 Peter 2 verse 12 exhorts the Christian to keep his conduct honorable and pure among the unsaved so that they can see that following Christ has made you different and that they, quote, may see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, become Christians. Can I put it this way? Instead of saying, come to Jesus Christ so that you will receive eternal life, which is true. Instead of saying, come to Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven someday, which is true. Come to Jesus Christ so that you can have access to God, which is also true. How about, let's refresh ourselves by saying, come to Jesus Christ because salvation glorifies God. That's the ultimate reason. And why does God get all the glory for salvation from sin? Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You were by nature children of wrath. But like verse 4, it took the powerful voice of the Lord to awaken you to new life. Like verse 5, it took the voice of the Lord to overcome your sinful heart, to break the cedars of your pride. Like verse 6, the gospel had to unsettle you. It had to unnerve you like the skithering calf. Like verse 7, the white hot lightning of the fire, the conviction of sin had to come upon you such that you became like the the terrified, trembling deer of verse 9 to submit to and worship the one true living God to be like those in the temple who looked at the storm and cried, Glory! Glory! And glory! All glory goes to God because you couldn't do anything. And He came and He thundered in your heart and He melted you. And remade you in Christ. 
And because in your heart of hearts you heard the voice of the Lord through the word of God and the scriptures and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you know what became true of you? John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my what? Voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to be very clear. Psalm 29 issues both a warning and a promise, and they're exactly the same thing. The warning and the promise is that you will ascribe glory to God. You will glorify the righteousness and the justice and might and holiness of God by being an object of His wrath for all eternity, or you will glorify his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his purity and his devotion by being an object of his love for all eternity. But you will glorify God. You will ascribe to God glory. Speaking of verse 11, our beloved Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he wrote this. Is not this a noble psalm to be sung in stormy weather? Can you sing amid the thunder? Will you be able to sing when the last thunders are let loose and Jesus judges the quick and the dead? If you were a believer, the last verse is your heritage and surely that will set you singing. You will ascribe to the Lord glory. In fact, even more specifically, you will ascribe to Jesus Christ glory. Because we know from Scripture that because of his faithfulness to come to earth and to die on the cross for the sins of all who would believe, I'll bet you can almost say this with me. Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. And after every knee has bowed and every tongue confessed, humanity will be divided into the group who decided to glorify God's wrath and the group whom God decided would glorify his love. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we owe you everything. We brought nothing except sin and rebellion, darkness, blackness. We brought our disgusting propensity to love ourselves more than you. And we would even dare to come to you and make deals with God. Well, I'll be saved if. But there is no making deals with you. You alone have chosen upon whom you will set your love. It is your right. We are your creations. It is your right to completely destroy us. It is your right to give us life. We bow in submission to your total sovereignty. How thankful we are, Lord, and how awestruck we are when we think that you would choose us to be instruments to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, that's unthinkable. And yet the Bible clearly says that we are being conformed into his image and that when we see him, we will be like him. How ultimately 
that will glorify you to now see so many countless millions who are just as pure and just as beautiful as your son, at least in terms of what he has done for us. Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman here who continues to glorify self, who refuses to bend the knee to the one who would break the cedars, who refuses to bow the heart to the one who thunders over the earth. Might this be the day where their heart is broken and melted, where they might repent and bow before the God of the thunder, the true God of the thunder, and now receive peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.